Welcome to Impact, podcast ministry of St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Middleton, Wisconsin. Impact features interviews with gifted Bible teachers who will help you gain a greater understanding of Scripture so that it has a greater impact on your life. The host of Impact is Mark Jensta, the staff minister for Nurture at St. Andrew. Hi everyone, welcome to Impact. It's great to have you with us today. And today I'm in snowy New Ulm, Minnesota, up on the hill at Martin Luther College. My guest is a returning guest, Professor Paul Kelpine. We'll talk to Professor Kelpine here in a moment. Let's first begin with a prayer. Dear Lord, give us insight as we look at your word today so we will truly understand your message and your way. Amen. So, Professor Paul Kelpin, welcome back to Impact. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's always good to have you. We've talked about Isaiah with you and Malachi. Yes, I, I like these uh, Old Testament characters. T- today it's Nehemiah. You're right. Maybe a little more unfamiliar to a lot of our uh, listeners, uh, Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, the historical content, but you're going to help us today understand him and sure. his place in Old Testament history. I'll do my best. Okay. Uh, as a professor here at Martin Luther College, uh, history and theology. That's I have correct. that right? That's correct. I teach uh, mostly uh, history courses, but I also teach a, the- a theology course we call Biblical History and Literature II, which uh, is about the time of the exile. I would say the, uh, uh, well, I'll say the time of the exile. We cover the major prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then uh, we cover the return from exile and the post-exilic period. Then we head ourselves into a little bit of historical background on the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testaments, and we don't have any scriptural material from that, but what historically was happening in those silent years. And then we finish that course with uh, the Gospels. And Nehemiah fits in that. Nehemiah fits right in there, right? And I I find that when the students, they've heard of Nehemiah, and uh, they may even vaguely understand where he fits into the scope of the timeline of Old Testament history, but they, very few of them have read it, very few of them know at all who he is, and so uh, I find that teaching the end of the Old Testament, in essence, to uh, students who are just starting college or you know younger college students uh, is a very interesting thing to do because this is material they don't know that well. Last night I told someone I was going to uh, talk to Professor Kelpine and and they know you by the way and and uh, they said well what's the content I said Nehemiah and I said what do you know about Nehemiah and <laughs> they kind of sheepishly said. Uh, nothing, <laughs> but it's it's fantastic heard, reading. Heard, isn't it? Oh, heard of him, right? right? You That's know? about as far as it goes. Yeah, right. There's a lot of good stuff in Nehemiah. Oh my that goodness, we'll get to yes. Today. I, I think Nehemiah is one of these. I'll call it an understudied book. I mean, there's a lot to learn from him. Very good. Uh, before we get into Nehemiah, we're going to today, folks, talk about Nehemiah chapter one, and then bring Professor Kelpin back next week and look at uh, Nehemiah chapter two. 
Before we get there, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your family, Professor, your children, sure. yeah. where they are and sure. what they're doing? My wife and I have four children. Uh, my wife, uh, I'll maybe just say this, that my wife uh, grew up in a missionary family. She actually grew up in Lusaka, Zambia. Her father was a uh, uh, missionary in, in Zambia and worked with the Bible Institute Seminary there. Uh, so she spent the first 12 years of her life in, in Zambia. So the last name? Fostenau. Okay. So, so her father was Don Fostenau. And uh, so she comes from a kind of missionary kid background. Um, and I have four children. Uh, the oldest two are girls. The youngest two are boys. Uh, the, uh, my oldest daughter, Christy, is married to a pastor in Olivia, Minnesota. His name is Isaiah Horn, and they have three children, Elias and Henry and Amelia. We call her Mimi. And then my uh, second oldest is Abby, and she's married to James Hemmelman, who happens to be a pastor at St. Paul's in Rapid City, South Dakota. And they have one ch uh, child, Malachi, and uh, they have a, they're expecting again in February. And then my son, Josh, is in his last year at the seminary. Uh, he vicared in Falls Church, Virginia. Um, part of what he needed to do in that setting was to preach not only in English, but also in Spanish. So he's a bilingual person. Uh, he will be getting married. Well, he'll get his first assignment after he graduates from the seminary this spring, and then he's getting married this June uh, out in Virginia to somebody whom he met out there, and she happens to be a uh, teacher at the school in Falls Church. And uh, so her name is Caitlin Vollmer, and uh, we're happy about that. And then my youngest son, Joel, uh, lives in Tampa, Florida. And uh, he went two years here, but then decided that he wanted to uh, try something else, and he got a degree in business and finance. His wife graduated from here, and she was assigned uh, as a, an early childhood person. So my son Joel uh, and his wife Katie have uh, little Amara Grace, is, uh, is my new granddaughters. So uh, how many grandchildren are grandchildren? So we have helping? five. Uh, and One we, on the way. One on the way. So yeah. Very good. A lot of blessings there to count. Many, many, many blessings. Very good. Nehemiah chapter 1? Yeah. First, what can you tell us about the name? Nehemiah. Yeah, Nehemiah is a Hebrew name, and uh, the the in Hebrew the word Naham means comfort. And uh, anytime you have a Yah on the end of something, an A-H on the end of a name, uh, that means it's going to relate to Yahweh or Jehovah or, you know, however one would say that like name. Like Isaiah. Like Isaiah. Jeremiah. Micah, Jeremiah, all of that, right? So here you have Nehemiah. And so it's comforted by the Lord. And, uh, but Nehemiah, the interesting thing about Nehemiah is oftentimes Old Testament books are by prophets. More often than not, those prophets are also serving as priests in some way, shape, or form, like Ezekiel, for instance. Uh, Nehemiah happens not to be a priest, and he happens not to be uh, a, a prophet per se. Um, we might call Nehemiah a layman who happens to be given charge uh, and direction, uh, as, as we're going to find out. This is somebody who uh, will 
very much assist uh, together with Ezra in uh, uh, bringing the post-exilic people back to an understanding of the Old Testament covenant, the Mosaic law, those kinds of things. So uh, God certainly used him as a spiritual leader, but he is not a priest. He's somebody who serves, as you can see at the very end, the last line of chapter one, or yeah, I guess it is the last line. I was the cupbearer to the king. Right. Um, so he's he's not even living in Jerusalem or the surrounding territory. He's he's living in Persia as this book begins. Okay. So, well, you mentioned you you like the name Nehemiah. Do you know anyone named Nehemiah? Um, off the top of your head, you know, off I don't the top think of my head, I, 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 I believe that we have a student, maybe even or two, named Nehemiah, but I, I don't, I don't right. know. I uh, can you help us? You've you've used this term a couple of times this morning or today, post-exilic. Yeah. Can you explain that to our listeners? What you sure? Mean by that? That's a big word. It it just means after the exile. And explain so, that. What happened was uh, in. In the 700s, the northern tribes of, uh, that, that we call the, the nation of Israel and their capital was Samaria, they were invaded and conquered by the Assyrians. And so the 10 northern tribes were taken into exile by Assyria in the 700s, 722, usually the date that's associated with the uh, fall of Samaria, the capital city. And... Uh, Assyrians are then, the empire of Assyria is then conquered and defeated by the Babylonians who had been under their thumb, but sieged some cities in Assyria, caused the Assyrian leadership and army to, to, to flee and move. Long story short, ultimately in the uh, late 600s and then going into the early 500s BC, uh, the Babylonians uh, take over in the ancient Near East. And those Babylonians, now remember the Assyrians had taken the northern tribes and they tried to take Jerusalem, but they didn't. Uh, God prevented them from doing that at the time of King Hezekiah. The Assyrians are sieging the city of Jerusalem. That's the time of Isaiah. And in uh, about 701 BC, this is that that siege is happening. Sennacherib is the king of Assyria, and they are not able to to uh, successfully siege the city. We read in the scriptures, 185,000 Assyrians are are dead, and uh, so uh, so Assyria is not able to take the southern kingdom. It remains a kind of independent entity until such time as the Babylonians come on and those, uh, come along and those Babylonians now siege Jerusalem this is Nebuchadnezzar and uh, they take the southern kingdom into exile they destroy the temple um, so now you've got the northern kingdom of Israel southern kingdom of Judah both taken into exile Assyrian Assyrians and Babylonians practiced deportation that means uh, they believe to manage their conquered land best. You've got to take people away so that they don't band together and try to recover the, 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 the power that they had lost and, and, and gain some measure of autonomy again. So if we take them away, they'll lose their spirit. 
they'll uh, they'll meld into an, 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 a new place. So deportation was a practice of management, people management. The interesting thing is that when the Babylonians uh, are are defeated, they are defeated by the Persians. The Babylonian Empire doesn't even last for a hundred years. It's one of the shortest lived empires uh, in in uh, ancient Near East. Persians come in. This is all foretold in Daniel. I mean, Daniel the prophet foretells exactly how these series of empires are going to do. What's going to happen? It's going to be Babylonians, and then the Persians are going to come, and then it's going to be the Greeks, and then the Romans, and that cycle of power and the interaction of power in the ancient Near East is all foretold there by Daniel. Um, the Persians easily take Babylon, and uh, when the Persians take over, they want to be perceived by the conquered peoples as a, I'll say, a kinder, gentler conqueror. And instead of deportations, the Persians tended to say to these deported peoples, go back home where you came from. So it makes total sense that the Persians would have said to the Jewish people who had been taken into exile, go back home to Jerusalem to the surrounding territories there, reestablish yourself. Um, that's an easier said than done proposition, but post-exilic, this a long, was a long answer to your question, but post-exilic means the history of the return from exile, and that history is essentially found in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So you are talking, Professor, about real people, Real places, real events. Yeah. The, the Bible is a book of history. Absolutely. Uh, can you put Nehemiah and, and the time of Nehemiah into a greater context of world history? I think that's a fascinating question to ask because the context of Nehemiah is, in an, from an ancient Near Eastern perspective, it's in the context of Persia. And so you have Cyrus the Great and uh, the, the great conqueror of Persia, and they're, they're the... The easternmost, Persia today is Iran, okay? And so uh, ancient Persia creates a, a large and extensive empire that goes all the way down to Egypt, all the way through Asia Minor, uh, Turkey, we call it today. Uh, they have this extensive network of communication. The Persians create this thing called the Royal Road, and that Royal Road was a communication network from their capital in Persia at Susa, where Esther lived, and uh, all the way to Sardis, which is at the very western edge of uh, Turkey today. And uh, so studying the Persians is a really fascinating thing to do. But the Persians are the ones that fight with the Greeks. You might remember that there are these things called the Greek-Persian Wars. And uh, the Greek-Persian Wars actually happen about, well, they happen, they start in the 490s. Nehemiah's going, the history that we're covering here about the return of Nehemiah to Jerusalem happens in about the 440s. So 
about 50 to 40 year period before Nehemiah are the Greek-Persian Wars. You know of the Battle of Marathon, for instance. That's part of the Greek-Persian Wars. That's one of the first episodes, the Battle of Marathon. Um, the Greeks will ultimately win these contests between the Greeks and the Persians, and when they do, the Greeks become, to some extent, full of themselves. I mean, if, if, if you hear classical Greece or Greece and its golden age, the golden age of Greece is the 5th century B.C., 400s B.C. This is the time of their victory over the Persians. This is the time of the, what we call the age of Pericles, the great leader of Athens. This is the time in which they build the Parthenon. The Parthenon, the great temple that's on the Acropolis, is built in the mid-400s or mid-5th century at almost exactly the same time this is happening in Nehemiah. The Greeks are over there in Athens building the Parthenon. About 100 years before Alexander the Great? About roughly. 100 about 100 years before Alexander, right? I mean, Alexander's conquests are going to be in the 330s, 320s. Okay, so, but you're right, about 100 years before Alexander. But this is classical Greece, and classical Greece is Athens. Classical Greece is, to some extent, Sparta. I mean, Athens and Sparta will fight each other at the end of the 5th century or the end of the 400s. We call that the Peloponnesian Wars. But so the context of Nehemiah is what's happening in Jerusalem at the edge of the Mediterranean there in, the, in what we might call the Eastern Mediterranean region. What's going on in Greece is uh, this Athenian empire is growing. And uh, uh, this is the age of the philosophers. I mean, Socrates and Nehemiah are exact contemporaries. Socrates lives at the time of Nehemiah. Socrates' great student is Plato. Plato lives kind of at the end of the 400s into the 300s. And so, you know, Greek philosophy, Greek architecture, Greek democracy, all of this is 5th century, same time as Nehemiah. I appreciate all the historical context you're giving us. We can all tell you're a, a passionate <laughs> professor of history. It's fascinating, I think. And, and the way you tie that in with Scripture uh, how about this question? And then, folks, I promise we will get to the text here in Nehemiah chapter 1. But while we have a history professor with us, we, we might as well uh, pick his I brain I spend here. a lot of time trying to put the context together because I think what happens is if Nehemiah is abstractly just Nehemiah and he doesn't connect to a time, then you don't remember him much. But if you can say, hey, that Parthenon with all the pillars and things, that, onto, yeah, that ruin of, uh, is the symbol of ancient Greece, that's the same exact time as Nehemiah. And Socrates. And Socrates, same exact time as Nehemiah. All of a sudden, that becomes a, a hook that you can connect to if you don't connect to what I call the matrices of chronology and geography then the information you learn historically doesn't tend to stick very well. Uh, but when the lessons have a place and a connection and a relationship, then all of a sudden history starts to stick better. Um, and it, it's why I spend a lot of time attempting to create context, especially for things like this, that students of the Bible don't know that well. They haven't studied extensively. I, I taught history at the high school level for a number of years, and I, I feel the same way. And, and 
that's why I use maps a lot. Yeah. So students can see history is, is uh, real events happening in real places that you can find on a map. Right. So all of this is, is inside God's greater plan of salvation. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> okay, so the people go back from exile. What worship was like during the exile is somewhat still a mystery to us. We know some things, but it, the evidence isn't extensive. What, what, how do they worship as Jewish people when they don't have a temple? It appears as though, of course, that it did continue. Obviously, God gave his exiled people prophets and priests who communicated God's word to them. For instance, Ezekiel is a prophet in exile. Ezekiel lives in exile with the exiles. Everything Ezekiel is saying, he's saying to Jewish people who are living outside of the promised land. They've been taken into exile. Uh, Daniel, everything God says through Daniel is related to them during the exile. So we know there are believers, but they are away from the, 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 the place of the temple and they are holding on to promises. They are trying to, to be as, as, as pious and diligent about their faith as they can be, but uh, they, they don't have that focal point that the temple was and that the worship that surrounded the temple, uh, they, uh, how that was. So they are living, you know, in... in exile lands. When they go back, well, what is the first thing they're supposed to do? This is what Ezra's about. Rebuild the temple. That's the focal point. Look, the post-exilic people are still under the Mosaic law. And the Mosaic law said, this is how you worship. These are the feasts and festivals that you keep. This is how you do this. When you read the books of Moses and the Mosaic Covenant and Code, it has a lot about the structure of worship. So they start building the temple, but they get kind of afraid that they're going to run into uh, opposition, and so they don't finish it. God sends prophets like Haggai and Zechariah to encourage them, come on, rebuild the temple. That's what you need to do. That's job one. When they finally do have the temple rebuilt, so Nehemiah, when he comes there, the temple's rebuilt. But these are people who have now been returned from the exile for, say, a generation. And their, their practice, the way they practice their Jewish worship, how they understand it is not very clean, crisp, or clear to them. And all of the peoples that surround them are pagan peoples who oppose them. So it's difficult to be a believer returning to Jerusalem and trying to pick up the pieces from something that's two generations past. I mean, put yourself into the position. It would have been your great-grandfather who was taken into exile. Your grandfather and your father grew up in exile. You 
uh, grow up partly in exile. And now the Persian king says, now you can go back. It, I, kinda, I say this to students. It would be like my great-grandfather came from Germany. I was exiled to the United States. I grew up in America. And now uh, somebody tells me, well, you can go return to Germany now. And, and go rebuild everything your grand, great-grandparents, uh, you know, that was destroyed at their time. That's a hundred years ago, or plus, right? And now go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the whole thing, and, and you have no, your sense of what it means to grow up is the context of exile. Uh, this is why in Nehemiah, when you get to the end of Nehemiah, they're trying to get people to reside in Jerusalem. It says in chapter 11, now the leaders and the people settled in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten into Jerusalem. Nobody wanted to live there. Now we return from exile. Jerusalem's the focal point of everything Jewish. Uh, and we, we face a lot of opposition. Do you want to live in an insecure city? These people wanted to return. They wanted to return to some kind of a more rural setting. That's great. That's fine. And every now and then we can head our... But do I want to live in the big city of Jerusalem? No, not really. So what is Nehemiah sent back to do? Secure the city. Make sure that they understand that the city is secured. And provide for the people a kind of example that says, let's continue to be serious about the Mosaic law under which we live. Look, salvation hadn't come yet. Jesus hasn't come yet. So everything God gives them in the Mosaic law is to set before them a great illustration of the sacrifice it will take, the sacrifice of perfection. Um, I will provide the sacrifice. Your worship surrounds this uh, context of sacrifice and prayer and offering and so forth. But I've... I've given you an illustration always to be in front of you of what I will do, what I will bring, the promises I have made. That's why I'm serious about this. It's not a going through the motions. It's not a checklist. This is a matter of the exercise of faith. That's who Nehemiah is. Here's a guy sent from the Persian king to be basically a secular leader, but his faith is a genuine and powerful faith, and he stands as an example before you. Later on, he'll hook up with Ezra uh, to create a, a reformation. You know, what's interesting is that at the time of the Lutheran Reformation, Luther and the Reformers, they thought of themselves in terms of Nehemiah, Ezra, because uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are, are reformers. That's what they're doing bringing the people back to the word, bringing the people back to faith. That's what they were doing. A reformation before there ever was a reformation. A ref and that's why when you, somebody told me this some years ago, he said, notice when, when there was a celebration of reformation, how often the Old Testament lesson came from Ezra or Nehemiah. Mm. Because the reformers had a conscience, conscious sense that they these people, Old Testament people, were in this position of reforming, of bringing the people back to their roots, to God's truth, 
that's what Nehemiah is all about. So we're talking about the exiles here that returned to Jerusalem, but they didn't all return. No. Uh, Give us a sense of how many and what percentage of of those living in uh, under Persian rule came back to Jerusalem. I don't know that I can. that means it, that information is not there because if it well, was, you know I mean, it. okay, what we ha- what we have is that we have lists. Ezra and Nehemiah both give you lists of returnees, and in the long genealogical sections, Nehemiah, for instance, records these are all the people that came back with uh, 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 with Ezra. You know, so he he does give you a sense of you know the thirty plus thousand people that would have come back at at. At certain times, Ezra himself has genealogical uh, sections in it as well. Um, but we don't know how many stayed behind. So in terms of percentage, I'll be truthful. I, I think it's a fairly low percentage. I thought I, thought I read 10% one time I, I was think a guess. I probably have read that somewhere before. So... It's maybe fair to say that the majority of the Jews stayed stayed where they were. Life is good here. We're not we're not going back. Yeah, we're that's the book of Esther. Here. That's the book of Esther. And we're going to stay here, right? But those that did go back, in part because that's that's our that's our home. But isn't it isn't it true that the bigger part of the reason why they returned is because that's our land, because that's the land that God gave to our fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For sure, uh, they know that. What does he say to Abraham, right? You, you're going to be a great people. I will bless all people through you, and, and I give you this land and so forth. But now you, you also know that in the Mosaic um, Covenant, you can go to Deuteronomy, for instance, and he says, look, if you don't obey this, I will take you into exile. And they were disobedient people. That's what the history of kings tells you. And now they're taking into, taken into exile. God does not abandon them. I happen to think that maybe one of the most difficult times in all of history to be a believer would have been to be a believer in exile because God allowed the the land he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be destroyed. He allowed it to be taken over. He allowed his very temple to be totally destroyed. So now if I'm a believer and I think to myself, now how powerful is this God? Who is this God who gives me these promises and then allows this to happen? He tells them, I allowed that to happen because you were unfaithful to me. And and he preserves a remnant of faithful believers in exile. And so what do you have to hang on to? You don't have a place or a space or anything visual. All you have to hang on to are the promises God gave. And he preserves a remnant of believers in exile, and that remnant of believers are, a, a, a portion of them are the ones who do return. And almost everyone who returns, let's just say everyone who returns, has never really been there before. They're returning to a place they've heard about that's part of the family lore. Nobody's lived in Jerusalem from these return exiles. They've lived in exile. And so this is a brand new place. It would be like, all right, go back to Norway and or go back to... Uh, very good. Think, well, thank you very much. <laughs> I mean, you'd go back to Norway and go, well, I visited here maybe once before. Do I Have I lived here? No. Do I speak Norwegian? No. Uh, do I go back to Germany? Uh, that's why I say uh, put it into 
perspective, it, it, you begin to realize returning from exile was not the easiest thing to convince people to do. And, uh, but there was a remnant God preserved. And God preserved this place and this space because he said, I still have something to do in Jerusalem. I told Daniel that the anointed one would come and that Jerusalem would be rebuilt. Okay, so God will work out salvation in a time, in a place, in a space, and Jerusalem has something to do with that. And after Christ comes, not very long after that, the Romans siege the city of Jerusalem and destroy the temple again, and because the because the place of Jerusalem has served its purpose. Yes, it all serves God's purpose. It served its purpose. But if you're in it, um, it would have been much more difficult to perceive that. You would have perceived, uh, you would uh, always and only have to hang on to the promises God made, that he would work things out according to his plan. And we say that about ourselves as individuals all the time. Uh, you, uh, somehow what, what's going on in our lives all the time is part of God's purpose. You look at the Jeremiah passage, I know the plans I have for you. If you look at the context of that, it's not speaking to you individually. I know that you're going to be a great podcast presenter and, and these kinds of things, or serve as a staff minister at St. Andrews in Middleton. He's speaking in broad, sweeping, general context about salvation. I know he says through Jeremiah, who's living during the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Look, you think this is awful, and it is, but you think I can't work good out of this. Look, I've, I know the plans I have for you, plans to give you hope and a future, and it's all related to Christ. It's all related to what I will do in Jerusalem. I will bring salvation to happen in Jerusalem. A cross is going to be planted outside the walls. And on that cross, the one who walked in the temple, the one whose very body the temple represents, will be sacrificed for you to forgive the sins of all time, the whole world. That has to happen at a place and I've got that worked out. Those are the plans I have. The plans I have to give you hope in a future because right now it doesn't look at all like there's any hope or any future. Hi, folks. I'm going to jump in here and end part one of my visit with Professor Calpine. He will be back next week for part two of our discussion about Nehemiah. And next week we'll get into the text, I promise, chapters one and two. So I hope you can come back and join us again next week. In the meantime, grace and peace are yours through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to Impact, a ministry of St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Middleton, Wisconsin. If you have a question or feedback to share, send an email to impact at saint-andrew-online.org. Please tell your friends and family about Impact and keep this ministry in your prayers. Impact is new every Monday, and all past episodes are available. The greater you understand Scripture, the greater impact it will have on your life.